I do not accept excuses. I'm just going to have to find myself a new giant, that's all. Don't say that, Vestini, please. Did I make it clear that your job is at stake? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rollet. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 140 today, and we are back to Erica's Choice. What are we talking about today? Are you ready for a film that has fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, and miracles? I think so. Good, because we're taking on The Princess Bride from 1987. Directed by Rob Reiner with Carrie Ellis, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Sarandon, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, Christopher Guest, Billy Crystal, Carol Kane, Peter Cook, Peter Falk, and Fred Savage. The film was adapted by William Goldman from his 1973 novel of the same name. And to paraphrase Rob Reiner, the film is about a grandpa reading a fractured fairy tale to a sick grandson to teach him about true love. The true love story is that of Wesley and Buttercup, who must overcome kidnapping and piracy, a deceitful prince, and death in order to have their happily ever after. So do you remember your first experience seeing this, and how many times would you say you've seen it since then? Yes, I remember this. I saw this in the theater at the Video Triple in Lawton, Oklahoma. It was one of the first times I went on a movie date when I was young. Ooh la la. And I saw it at least a couple times in the theater because that was my pattern then. I went to the movies a lot, but we didn't have a lot to choose from in our area, so I would go multiple times as my friends were available to go on their varying schedules. Presumably just if it was something that you liked enough to re-see. Or sometimes not even that. Or I not. think we went to North Shore twice. Well, the movie I can understand that. Champion Surfer of Arizona. Yeah, you don't have to tell everybody. Everybody knows already. <laughs> And then I saw it a couple of times on home video soon after that, but then there was a big gap between those days and this most recent viewing, so it's probably a total of five or six times. What about you? Well, I can't recall at this point whether or not I first saw it in the theater or soon after on VHS. I do know that some family friend very kindly recorded it off of HBO for me, and so we watched that copy for years and years. I would say at this point, and I also had a long gap, probably 20 times. Now, we've mentioned our age gap before. You're five years older than I am. So you saw this when you were about 17 mm -hmm. to my 12. Do you feel like you were the quote unquote right age for it? I suppose I'd say that, but that's mainly because it works well for what you bring to it at any age, essentially. I was old enough at the time to get all the levels that it was working on but there are still those little things that reveal themselves as I gain more experience. I think I was probably that latter side. I feel like I was the perfect age to hit all of the different emotions and appreciate the broader humor. And then the more subtle humor made so much more sense as I got older. Now, did you find the book or the movie 
first? And did the experience of one inform the other? The movie was first for me. I think I was given the book only about 10 years ago. So there was a big gap between the last time I saw the film prior to this viewing and when I read the book also. So the basis of those early viewings, I think, gave me a better foundation to enjoy the book in the way it expanded on what I already knew of the story. If I had to guess, I would assume that the great majority of folks, the movie was first, wouldn't you say? I think so. And it was the same for me. It was seeing the film and hearing about it that drove me to the book. And I remember going to the library and locating it from the old paper card catalog in the stacks, which was awesome. And I really remember being drawn into this idea that there was this old manuscript that Goldman was commenting on in the margins. It was just really fun for me. I loved the book. And when I say I found the book, it was right after. So I was still just about 12 or 13 at the time. Looking back at it now, I think this movie has a greater significance to the culture at large than maybe I realized all this time. Just for starters, it has to be a favorite among drama club kids, second only to Clue, right? I would say that. And then that certain section of drama kids who are super into Monty Python. Yeah, it just has that vibe. I can see them in their favorite booth at Denny's after a show reciting these lines to each other, driving their server crazy. But it does have that intangible specialness about it. And the cast, they certainly had that feeling, I think, of we're on to something here. When we were watching the special features for this, you can really hear it in Mandy Patinkin's reaction to seeing the rough cut. Sometimes you know when you're doing it. Sometimes you know once it's finished. Sometimes you don't even know until it settles into its place in the cultural landscape years later. But I'm always so intrigued by that process of how a movie finds its audience. Now, we should take care to classify this correctly, I think. I've seen this referred to as a cult classic in a couple of places, and I take exception to that. Why is that? You couldn't make a more mainstream Hollywood film. It did have a relatively modest budget, yes, and it had relatively modest returns, but it was critically lauded at the time. It's never been in danger of being forgotten. So it's not like we're talking about Pink Flamingos or Reuben and Ed here. And I've heard people year after year still cite this as one of their favorites, so it seems like it was never in some sort of cult. Cults usually are smaller. They keep it a little closer to the vest. This is more like a church. I just don't appreciate it when they play fast and loose with these phrases, basically. If you want to talk about a cult classic with Peter Falk, let's talk about vibes. Tune in tomorrow is one of my favorites. Someday you're going to watch it, and I think we're going to have some fun. Well, are you ready to get into the film itself? Yeah, let's do it. Well, let's start with the framing story. We start with the sick kid being visited by his grandpa, the kid does not really want to have a book read to him right now. He's into his video games. Yeah, the first thing I think with this is, don't you roll your eyes at Peter Falk, you big dummy. <laughs> don't you know that's a national treasure you're looking at? I do remember, though, kind of connecting with the idea of being a kid who doesn't necessarily want to hang out with his grandpa all the time. You probably can't, though. No, my grandpas were both bitter old men that I aspired to be, so I wanted to pick up some tips. I think you did. Good job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was laughing right away with Peter Falk. I should qualify that. Bitterly funny. They okay. were both very funny. All right. Not shaking their fists at eh, everybody. Both. A little bit. My one grandpa, he's the one that had the heart attack when he was mowing the lawn, sat down on the front porch, kind of waited it out, got up and finished mowing the lawn. I think that's what you call a tough old bird. Yeah. But if you related to not wanting to hang out with your grandpa, what about the being given a book as a gift? 
That would have been great. I would have just said, drop off the book. I'll see you later. <laughs> Thank you. Because I relate to this because in our family, a book is a great present. We always exchange books for significant events like birthdays or holidays. It's one of my favorite things to give or receive. We give each other books all the time. So the framing device, it hooks me right away. And I would give my eye teeth to have Peter Falk read anything to me. I'm sure you could have guessed this, but I definitely related to the kid constantly interrupting the story <laughs> or reminding him where, in fact, he left off. Now, I would say that I connect with this as my sick kid movie. One of those things where you're homesick, you put on, and you know you're going to feel a lot better. But you mentioned seeing this on a date. Maybe we should talk for a second about the concept of date movies, quote unquote. Define those terms a little bit. Because we went on dates to Texas Chainsaw. 3D. And Zero Dark Thirty. I believe you're leaving out the home run date hit Amour, the Hanukkah film. I was talking about <laughs> the movies we went to see before we were together. You kept the worst, quote unquote, <laughs> for afterwards. Well, we also went to see Alien and we watched Sullivan's Travels together. Oh, uh, that's true. So I guess you can figure, plural you, audience you, that... I'm not sure that phrase means the same thing to us as it does to other people. We don't often subscribe to ideas like that or participate in them in the more traditional sense. But you're right. This was a date movie when I first saw it, and it did come out, like you mentioned, when I was 17, and I was finally hitting that age where I could officially get into any movie without being accompanied by parent or guardian. And so this was a string of movies that I went to with my high school girlfriend, from Labyrinth to Angel Heart to Raising Arizona to this to Everybody's All-American for some reason was in that mix. I saw that on VHS. But this was far and away the most traditionally datish or romantic choice among the bunch. And I have to say, I still don't enjoy the idea, thinking back on it, that sensation that I associate with this phrase, it conjures up for me... Images of a safe, bland experience where both parties are compromising on something mediocre just to have something to do. I was falling asleep before I even finished that sentence. And it's the same thing with music. I go to a show because I want to listen to the band. I don't want to have to carry on a conversation or have any expectation put upon me that I'm going to pay a great deal of attention to anything other than what I came to see. If that's what you want, we could have gone somewhere else where we can sit and talk. This activity is to consume what's happening in front of you. Afterwards, great. But I think I've realized too through the years that a lot of people don't go to the movies for the same reasons that I do. And at this point, excluding you, if I ever did that again, it would basically just be a test. And if you talk during the movie, bye. You pull that and you're probably lucky that I even give you a ride home. But how about you? Did you have good experiences with date movies? So if we go from roughly that same age period for me, let's say 17, about the time that I was dating, for whatever reason, The Last of the Mohicans <laughs> was really big. And I also think that people don't understand what the term romantic actually means. It was at the Dollar Theater, though, so maybe that was the draw. I also went on a very uncomfortable date to see The Abyss. <laughs> Was it just because Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio was on screen? No, you know I was hooked for that movie the whole time. It yeah. was great. And it wasn't uncomfortable necessarily for either of us because we were friends. Only uncomfortable because the kid's dad, I think, thought this was very serious. And I think he thought, oh, maybe my son's not gay. 
Was he right? No. <laughs> so we were pals and had a good time, but I know that my friend was uncomfortable feeling his dad Those, kind of lurking expectations. Yeah, that pressure. That's too bad. Pulling his collar, kind of a Charles Nelson Riley sort of a thing. Well, back to the film, we get the introduction to our lovers, who don't know that they're going to be lovers at first. But they are two of the most beautiful humans ever created, and so they are in love. But there is a separation right away. Now, Wesley is played here by Carrie Elwes and Buttercup by Robin Wright, whom I know we're huge fans of. Carrie Elwes, though, I think you have a little bit of a beef with him. I wouldn't say a beef necessarily as just a lack of interest in general. He does exactly what he needs to do here. He's great for this. And I think when I saw it the first time, him being an unknown quantity for me was a benefit. But since then, he is the only actor that I can think of that when he's playing an American, I think he's British and his American accent is terrible. And then when he's playing a Brit, I think he's American and his British accent is terrible. So he's never going to be able to please you. Probably not. He was bad in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but almost everyone was, to be fair to him. I properly hated him in Twister, just like I was supposed to, so that worked the way it should. The Saw franchise is just not my thing, so basically he has 130 IMDb credits, and this may be the only one I really like. I think he's perfect here, and I think also, possibly that's his whole range. I do know that they cast him because of his kind of Errol Flynn-like charisma. And Errol Flynn, also in my opinion, was not a very good actor outside of the one thing that he could do really well. Now, Wesley and Buttercup are both gorgeous, and I also think the locations are gorgeous. They're exceptional. I remember waiting till the end because I specifically wanted to see where this was filmed. And I also remember a reference in the script to Patagonia, and that sent me looking for where Patagonia is. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. I love them. They definitely capture your imagination, and they contribute to a fairy tale atmosphere for sure. The first place I remember thinking, where did they shoot this? It wasn't during the Cliffs of Insanity sequence, strangely enough. Even though you might think that would be the most attention-grabbing location, Instead, it was after the Battle of Wits, those castle ruins in the background. That's what got my attention, maybe because that sequence was more sunlit than the Cliffs of Insanity sequence, but that's the first time I thought, ooh, where is this? And it looks like something has happened, some vestige of civilization that is probably really intriguing and exciting. So the separation, Wesley sets out to seek his fortune so that he can come back and marry Buttercup as a rich or more well-off person, not as a farm boy. Did you have any of those favorite young person has to go make their way in the world sort of story, or even a pirate story? I definitely did, but it wasn't a pirate story, or even a making your own fortune type of story exactly, but the series I love for finding yourself and going out into the world, just starting that, the Great Brain series by J.D. Fitzgerald. I was a huge fan of that, too. Yeah, those books are great. It has this slightly archaic setting, which I liked. It was turn-of-the-century Utah. And they're all about a kid who gets into and then out of all kinds of mischief, using mainly his wits, which really appealed to me. But he wasn't just some nerdlinger, either. There's gambling, fighting, magic tricks, con men, homemade roller coasters that he's charging people to ride. You learned all kinds of things that would come in handy farther down the road. That series is awesome. 
I was always intrigued by that aspect of storytelling in Dickens, because there seemed to be a whole lot of the young man having to go out and make good. That version of Nicholas Nickleby that you love so much with Chris Kattan? <laughs> <laughs> Great Expectations is yeah. one of them. I did get into Jane Eyre a lot later, and I think of her as the girl version of that. In our story, though, unfortunately, Wesley is captured by pirates and killed. Maybe, question mark. We'll revisit that in a moment. But it's five years later, and Buttercup is set to marry Prince Humperdinck. An absolute creep if there ever was one. I have to tell you, though, Chris Sarandon in the beginning gets me every time. There's something about that guy that's really seductive and charming. That's how you end up drowned in a moat. I guess so. Or a vampire's girlfriend, probably. But anyway, we know Buttercup does not love him, but she's going along with this. And one day out for a ride, she is kidnapped by three bandits. Yeah, I love the introduction here of the quote-unquote bad guys that we really run into for the first time. And that's Vizzini, Fezzik, and Inigo Montoya. I love Vizzini's somewhat anachronistic grasp of history unemployed in Greenland that's such a great joke improved even more by the delivery of it. I love the rhyming and the wordplay they get into. All that was really appealing to me. And how much do you think Wallace Shawn regrets ever uttering the word inconceivable? I believe that's yelled at him on a daily basis. Yeah. I know that it has to be a big drag for him. Maybe still is, I assume. I doubt it will ever go away, but the mental picture of something like him dropping his keys on the street and some schmo yelling inconceivable at him, it never fails to make me laugh when I picture it in my head. Well, speaking of Wallace Shawn, I knew who he was at this point, and I'm starting to recognize as we go some of these people. That's when you were 12? Yes, really kind of the big ones. But, for example, Mandy Patinkin, I had no idea who he was. That's the odd one out to me, because I would have thought with your theater background that he would have been the first one you recognized. No, I think that was a little bit too early. It wasn't quite Sondheim territory at that point for me. But based on how old you were, did you already know some of these more specialized players? I'm thinking Christopher Guest especially, and did you enjoy that? Oh, absolutely, yes. Christopher Guest especially. Spinal Tap was already a favorite. I'd already committed that synchronized swimming sketch on SNL to memory. Hey, you. I know you. Look at you. Look at you. I was a fan of Chris Sarandon's from Fright Night, like you probably were. I hadn't seen it yet, and I hadn't seen Spinal Tap yet either. Carol Kane in everything, but especially Taxi. I knew her, and I knew Billy Crystal for sure. And then Peter Falk has been my favorite for as long as I can remember, because I grew up as a small child watching Columbo. Now, our bandits and Buttercup are headed towards the Cliffs of Insanity. (laughs) It makes me laugh every time he says that. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And there's a boat chasing them. Somehow, the pacing on this even manages to make an overnight boat chase fly by. But we talked about locations before, and now we have the mix of the real and the magical. For example, when they're on the sea or the screaming eels. You're a huge fan of miniatures, so how did this all play for you in terms of setting the scene? I know I mentioned at the beginning they had kind of a modest budget, but I like when you can see that a little bit. And you can see that in these scenes on the water especially. It's clearly artificial. 
but it does nothing to take away from my enjoyment of everything because all the rest of the elements are so on the money. The wardrobe, for example, that red dress that we first see her in, in the woods, that is a beautiful costume choice to plant the seed of boldness that she's given to action, that she's not traditionally pure or demure in the fairy tale sense. And so it makes a powerful impression without having to say anything. So it's not at all surprising when she jumps off the boat into the water. Humperdinck's purple hunting outfit, traditionally connoting royalty. We see that later. I love that too. All of those things, it seems like they took such great care with them that the blend of the real and the fantastic, it just meshes perfectly for me. The more I've been thinking about this film, I really do feel like I like it so much because it plays into or helped create this childhood obsession I had with danger and the idea that there were dangerous characters lurking behind every corner. Was there something specific that fed that? Did you read a lot of Nancy Drew or were you reading actual grown-up books by that time? Both of those things, plus Star Wars and Dallas. Hmm. Darth Vader haunting your dreams. Yeah, and J.R. <laughs> yep, all of those at play. Now, let's talk about the maybe downside of cheapness for a second. Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, an incredible band, a great player. He does the music here. How did that work for you? Well, you can definitely tell that Knopfler is in charge because the production on the acoustic guitar is the best of all of the instrumentation. I really wish they had spent the money on a real brass section for those fanfares and not just a synthesizer. They also use synth drums in a couple of places. That's really distracting to me. I don't know if this affects everyone the same way. I hadn't noticed it until you mentioned it. And I guess maybe subliminally, I thought that they were possibly mimicking those early gaming sounds that the kid would be used to. Yeah, I think the pristine production on Knopfler's guitar undercuts that argument a little bit for me. We'll have to get him on the show and ask him. But he is one of my favorites. Dire Straits Making Movies is one of my favorite records of all time. I taped that record off the radio because our biggest rock station in Oklahoma City at the time, they did this thing that I loved called The Seventh Day. At 7 p.m. every Sunday, instead of their regular rotation, they would play seven records in their entirety, commercial-free, no interruption. And so I would get my TDK cassettes out in case there was anything I wanted to record. That's how I got into Marillion. I was just going to make yeah. a joke about that. Did you have to get four cassettes for that one? <laughs> no, just one. Maybe it ran over to the second side a little bit. And that's how I got into Dire Straits making movies. I still know every song by heart. Now, by the way, fun fact, did you know what Mark Knopfler insisted on getting from Rob Reiner in order to participate? No, what's that? He insisted on something from Spinal Tap showing up in the film somehow. So somewhere there's Derek Small's foil-wrapped cucumber. I guess, sir, they could have put Stonehenge in there, maybe? <laughs> but no, Rob Reiner was pretty funny about this, and if you go back to the grandson's bedroom and look on the left when he's in frame... You'll see Rob Reiner's hat that he wore as the director on camera for that film. Now, in grandson terms, the story's about to get really good. The Man in Black is on their trail, and it's left to Inigo to participate in the greatest sword fight in modern times. But before that happens, we have this kind of extended sequence where... First, he has to give him time to climb the cliffs of insanity. People in masks can't be trusted, they say, but 
Montoya knows an earnest pledge when he hears one, and so before they get to the duel proper, he takes the time to relate this story of his father, and it gives you an idea of the darkness sometimes at the root of a fairy tale, because we are talking here about the dishonest elite exploiting and killing artisans in the working class. Inigo's father, killed by the six-fingered man who refused to pay for this amazing sword that his father had created. And I love that they essentially make a partnership here in order to get to the fencing. Yeah, there are levels to this darkness. I'm not saying it's that intense right away, and it's all very genially adversarial in this instance. I just like, too, that multiple people are on quests in this story, and they're all important. These quests, it's interesting to me because there's a distinction we make in this story between the mercenary avenger and the true villain. There's not a lot of money in revenge, he says, but in Montoya's case, at least, his quest is partially noble. The true bad guys, the royalty, they're all craven cowards and cheaters, and so fairy tales impart lessons, as we know, and these good bad guys, quote-unquote, Vezik and Inigo, it's a good introduction, I think, for the younger viewers to this complex idea of shades of gray and mixed motives. I was really thinking about this a lot a couple of days ago in the context of real-life people who find themselves in no-win situations that aren't villains or criminals but are still breaking the law. Primarily because it's what I've been reading lately, about the drug trade especially. I was thinking about these Ecuadorian fishermen that get pressed into service by Colombian drug kingpins to deliver to Mexican cartels. They're stuck in the middle here. And so they have this dilemma. Do I take this job and make more money in one night than I'm going to make all year long? If I refuse the money, will they make me do it anyway? If I don't take the job, someone else will. And my wife is sick and she needs this medication and it's the only way I can afford it. So the mercenary thing gets complicated. And I like in this, it goes throughout every single element of the story. It resonates even down to the names of the nation states, Florin and Gilder. They're both named after money. Villainy for hire is not just the coin of the realm. The realms themselves are coins. And I know we'll have more to talk about with that when we get to the resolution as well. But in the meantime, you want to talk about that battle for just a second? Yeah, the swashbuckling element is great. I read Carrie Ellis's memoir about filming this, and it was great fun because everyone also chimed in as well, and truly it was a big love fest the entire time. Did you read it in a terrible accent? No. My usual terrible American accent, I guess. <laughs> As you might expect, Mandy Patinkin was incredibly intense. During the fight, he started training two months beforehand so he could get a leg up. Takes a little time for a guy to study his Agrippa. It does, and his Capofero, and his Tybalt. Real fencers, by the way. Because it was there on the page, it was characterized as the greatest sword fight in modern times, and their fencing instructors took that very seriously. We had Bob Anderson and Peter Diamond, who, by the way, at the time were twice and three times the ages of the actors. Peter Diamond trained Errol Flynn. He was the stunt coordinator for the Star Wars trilogy, for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Bob Anderson was an Olympic fencer. He played Darth Vader during the lightsaber duels in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Now, they put this whole fight together. They showed it to Rob Reiner, and he said, basically, that's it. So they had to go back and make it even better. 
that's it because he was unimpressed or that's it because it was so well done it was over quickly? I think a little bit of both. They made it look almost too easy and it was too short. So he had them add in the layers. That's why you see them using every part of that cool set. Well, this part really spoke to me because as a kid, I loved Robin Hood and pirates and sword fighting. Coincidentally, I was actually taking beginning fencing around the time this came out. Our geometry teacher, Mr. Piper, he had fenced in the army and he had a lot of extra gear because he kept up his skills. And so there were a handful of us that took fencing lessons from him after school for a long stretch. And it was really great fun and we got pretty good at it, or at least we improved a lot from where we started. It appeals very much to the perfectionist side of me because it's so precise and you have to outwit your opponent as much as overpower them. It is a fascinating discipline. Physical and mental at the same time. Chess with a sword, basically. That's why I like tennis as well. Mm -hmm. It's not as deadly, (laughs) but it's very fun in that way. So the man in black bests an ego, and he's on his way. And it's down to Fezzik to best him physically instead. And this is Andre the Giant, a person I definitely knew who he was at the time. I was a huge fan of his. I don't know how you cannot be. And everybody loved him, said he was the biggest smiler, said he was the nicest, friendliest, most warm person in the world. Yeah, he's the perfect choice because I love how in the film, his moral dilemmas, he approaches them with such curiosity and cheerfulness. Can you imagine the strength it took just to roll him over once he was on the ground? I was a huge fan of Andre's too, and I have talked with you at length about the joys of regional wrestling promotions back in the late 70s and early 80s, probably more than you thought you ever wanted to know. Definitely more than I knew before. You're a huge wrestling fan. Yeah. Anytime Andre came to your region, because he traveled around all the time, it was a big deal. Most of the guys I watched, they were either from the Mid-South region, like Junkyard Dog, or from Texas, like the Von Erichs. But Andre went from region to region to region, And when he came to your town, there was something different in the air. He was an international sensation. And this was before wrestling was a more uniformly nationwide thing like it is now with the WWE. Did he usually play the heel? No, Andre was usually the good guy, or at least a neutral character. He did a few heel turns because he was in the business forever, and so you're eventually going to. And this was in those days... Also, when some of the venues were just this side of backyard wrestling, probably. It was on TV, but it was still lovably rinky-dink in retrospect, though it seemed larger than life to me at the time, and then Andre was larger than any of them. Did you know that when Andre was a kid, he couldn't ride the school bus, so Samuel Beckett would give him rides to school in his truck? I read that, and I'm still reeling from that one. He was a real-life folkloric character to me and to a lot of other people. And people tell these outlandish stories about him. One of my favorite untrue ones was that he had 80 teeth. I love that image. (laughs) Like he's a giant shark. The ones I love the most though are the ones that you talk about. You hear them again and again about how much he went out of his way for fans and especially the kids that came to the matches. I loved it any time that he showed up in our territories and he stayed as long as it took to sign everything, gigantic hugs for kids, huge high fives. He never let the kids down. And it makes me so happy that William Goldman wrote this part specifically for him 
because not very many people are legitimate legends in their own time, and he deserves to be immortalized that way. It was just a shame that this world was not made for someone his size. We lost him way too soon. It was really sad. There's a story that I love from the set. Uh, Robin Wright said that she was really cold during some outside filming, and he put his hand on top of her head and was essentially her hat. The man in black bests the giant as well. He outlasts him. He outwits him a little bit. But now it's going to be down to a battle of wits. And that's with Vicini. I still remember, and I still listen closely when I rewatch, trying to figure out what choice he's going to make via his wordplay. Do you remember if you guessed right the first time? Did you get it? I don't think so. But I didn't know Iocane powder existed. <laughs> Now, there's a funny story, too, about Wallace Shawn. Evidently, he had heard that Rob Reiner really wanted Danny DeVito in this role, which I think you can also envision. And he became so fixated on that, he believed that he would be fired at any moment because he could not deliver a Danny DeVito-style performance. That's a hard one to measure up to. No one can deliver a Danny DeVito-style performance. Absolutely not. He is one of a kind, just like Wallace Shawn yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. You've got the perfect guy, I think, in this case. We haven't talked about Rob Reiner much before. How would you characterize him as a director in general? When I think about him, I don't see a real auteur stamp, at least right away. It doesn't come to mind immediately. He reminds me more of one of these quality guys from the studio system that you can count on to get in, get out, keep everything on time and on budget, keep your cast happy, and turn out solid entertainment film after film. Though I heard North wasn't that great. I haven't seen it. And I literally haven't seen anything of his after that. So maybe he's still turning out masterpiece after masterpiece. I couldn't say. But based on track record, I would always give something of his a try unless the bad so eventually started to outweigh the good. I do like this running theme, though, in his career of the power of storytelling and often having writers as protagonists or heroes. One of his real signatures, if we're trying to put him into that auteur box, is that he reveres creativity in those processes and the positive things that they add to our lives. He celebrates that over and over again. I'm of basically the exact same opinion. I even use the same words in my notes. It reminds me of someone from the old system. Somebody who is just so good at making a tight movie. No fat. Everything moves along like it's on fire. And once again, the man in black is on top. Vicini is dead. He's got Buttercup and they're on the move. And she says immediately, you are the Dread Pirate Roberts, meaning the person who killed her beloved Wesley. Wesley with eyes like the sea after a storm. I can so vividly remember those words. I think of them from time to time, actually. And he begins to tell her about the Dread Pirate Roberts. So before we move forward, let's take just a second. I wanted to talk about the Dread Pirate Roberts real-life antecedent. Okay, cool. I actually don't know much about this. He was, in real life, Bartholomew Roberts, and he lived from 1682 to 1722. He was a Welsh pirate who raided ships off of the Americas and West Africa. In his roughly three to four years of operation on the seas, he captured over 400 booties or prizes during that, that period. That is an incredible amount in a short time. Yeah, he was the most successful pirate during that period. After his death, 
he became more well-known as Black Bart, which is probably a name you will recognize. What was interesting to me and what I feel like William Goldman really took from that story, he had these very strict articles of conduct for everyone who sailed with him, and they seemed kind of puritanical for a pirate. And he did sometimes make statements like, well, I'll probably kill you later. It was reported that he would often proclaim, damn to him who ever lived to wear a halter. Big talk from a guy wearing a mask all the time. Well, this scene has a really interesting moment in it for me. When they take it on the lamb and they are catching their breath and they have their first reunion, as it were, though she doesn't know it's him yet. Tonally, this is the only scene in the whole thing that's a little weird to me. And this is primarily because I take it at face value. I read it pretty straight. I see Wesley as harboring actual bitterness and threatening actual violence to Buttercup. Is that just me misreading it? Is this a clever ploy or a bit of role-playing to achieve a certain result on his part? How does it feel to you? I think that's interesting that you say that because it hadn't really occurred to me. When you put it like this, I wonder if, yes, he in fact, he is very angry, like you said. Then does she have to redeem herself in his eyes? Has she done enough to redeem herself for her faithlessness, as he calls it? Because she does have to say, I don't love Prince Hupperdink. She makes that very clear. And everything that she went through once she learned that he had died. It's not fair to put all that on her, I don't think. I think it's all in Wesley's court for me, and he's probably done some pretty piratey things in the intervening years, I imagine. So when he says that women receive grave punishment for lying where he's from, I don't doubt it. She's in a difficult position. I want to reserve that for just a few more moments, though. Because now we're about to get into the fire swamp. How does this stack up against your favorite kid adventure sort of stuff? And how about is your favorite adult adventure kind of stuff? It does a good job with that on both counts, I think. It often blends the two. And I love this section where they enter the fire swamp. It's rife with unnatural fairy tale style dangers. Lightning sand was definitely relatable to me because the adventure stuff we watched as kids in the 70s. Quicksand was everywhere. The rodents of unusual size, they were dangerous, but they were also a little comical. So there was a nice balance with that. This felt like the most dangerous environment they would be in. So it was exciting. And it also gave me a similar feeling as some sections of Labyrinth that I mentioned earlier. I thought Labyrinth, though, it always had more potential for weird, real kid danger. It felt more wild and unpredictable. This felt safer, was more of a standard high adventure type. That's one of the reasons why I felt like when I first saw it, it was a little bit more of that aspirational kind of adventure because none of this action included kids at the time. So I was watching adults go through this. So I got way more into the personal vendettas and the true <laughs> love stuff. Well, aside from those things, the one idea that stuck out for me here, the idea of Roberts as a franchise, that was really novel to me as a younger viewer. It's the name that inspires the fear. These days, I assume even grade school kids are wise to the idea of branding, but I never thought of it before. And then watching him in this environment, it's also noteworthy that he is capable of killing. We've imagined it from his pirate stories, and we see it firsthand with one of these rodents. Yeah, now that you say that about the whole franchise, it reminds me a little bit of Frankenstein in Death Race 2000. For once, someone steals from Corman instead of the other way around. Or I should say borrows, because I love Corman. Yes. 
And William Goldman, as a master, doesn't really have to borrow from anyone, but I really do hope everyone goes out to read not only the script, but the novel, too. He always said this was his favorite work. He held out for a long time against having it made into a film. Funnily, though, he was often on set, and that wasn't characteristic of him, but he was having a good time. He ended up being a huge fan, though, of the end result of the film. Yeah, a good story wins over even the most skeptical, even the author himself in this case, like you say. The power of storytelling, this is where Goldman is your ace in the hole. His skills are just impeccable. He's written a handful of literally the greatest scripts and stories ever. I know people love to point to Chinatown all the time, but in my estimation, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is the most perfect script ever written in terms of movie entertainment. I was going to say that one as well. I think it's flawless. He could retire on that alone. But then you've got all the president's men and on and on. And when you look at this script itself, immaculate use of the rule of three here in everything from joke structure to how many times Wesley stabs the rodent. One of my favorite writing touches in this whole thing is the significance of Inigo's wounds being explicitly echoed by Count Rugen's. That climactic duel is strictly an eye for an eye, with Inigo doling out these very specific injuries so that it's precisely equal and allows the audience to continue to think of him as an Avenger and not cross over into murderer. They make it out of the fire swamp, but they get captured just the same by Humperdinck and Rugen, and Buttercup sacrifices their love, essentially, so that Wesley can stay safe. But she doesn't know that he's going to be taken to the pit of despair. Because, by the way, Count Rugen is the six-fingered man. By the way, I did know who Mel Smith was at this time. So I felt like, oh, it's just for me. That's weird for a 12-year-old. It was, and it still is. But speaking of Mel Smith, how did you find this broad versus the subtle comedy here? For example, the albino's voice changing. Just like my previous answer, they both work appropriately, I think, because both parody and satire are happening here. So you use the right tool for the right job at the right time. And while we are talking about things that jump out at us as far as those performers go through this stretch, I want to say Malcolm's story, and I didn't think this at the time because this character didn't exist, but now when I look back on it, he reminds me so much of Ray Purchase from Toast of London. Yes, if we redo it, that's who we'll cast. Then that means Matt Berry absolutely has to be Wesley. You don't think Vicini or Rugen? Oh, no. I want him to have the most screen time all (laughs) the time. Okay, or Humperdinck. Humperdinck's barely in it, it seems like. Uh, I want more Matt Berry. Okay, we'll talk to the casting director and I'll get back to you. In the meantime, the marriage of Buttercup and Humperdinck is going to proceed. And Buttercup has this dream in which the ancient booer appears to call her on the carpet for her decisions. By the way, the ancient booer was played by Marjorie Mason, who died at 101. She was even in a Harry Potter film, so she was working forever. Now, just a moment ago, we were talking about Buttercup and these choices that she's made and how she gets blamed for some things that are maybe not her fault. Does she have a more complex role here? And we're also talking about really the only woman in the script. I think when viewed through the prism of traditional fairy tale structure, Buttercup is supremely interesting to me because 
She does not have the issue of having to ditch the father figure to become her own woman. They jettison that before the story even starts. She found her prince immediately rather than at the end of the story. That's an interesting inversion. There's never a true competition for her hand because when Wesley is present, there is no other choice. But when he's thought to be dead, she makes the best choice for herself. And it's also presented, I think, importantly, that she doesn't really have a choice in the matter. He is the prince. He gets to choose whomever he wants, and everyone else has to go along with it. And that leads us into some even darker elements of the fairy tale. There's the threat of suicide, this discussion of the agency of the princess. And extending that beyond her, you even have the distinction between Wesley becoming a changed man, but not a corrupted man when he goes off on this adventure. And then something you referred to at the very top of the show, one of the most interesting questions for me is about these hurdles that you have to overcome to arrive at, to achieve, to earn, to merit. We can discuss which synonym you think is the most interesting or the best fit here. You're happily ever after. Do you favor one of those approaches to that? Is this something that you are questing for? Is it something that you have to earn? What do you feel about that? It's something I hadn't thought about until we were married when it really occurred to me all the work that you have to continue to do to be your best self. So they get through the initial part and then that's really sorely tested. They have to come back to each other and they do it on their own terms. And it also suggests something really interesting to me about this whole idea of basically the peasantry or anyone who wasn't in royalty, what they have to do to simply exist. And then the cherry on top of all of this is him choosing this phrase, as you wish, as the epitome of the declaration of true love. And that's romantic love. That is familial love. It really is perfect. And it applies in so many situations, obviously, because Peter Falk's delivery of it at the end, it hits me the hardest for multiple reasons. It's so selfless. And they continue to have to give of themselves, sometimes giving up themselves in order to help or save or keep the other person safe. We're about to be hit with another injustice here. Wesley is getting one year of his life sucked away by the machine, Count Rugen's invention. It's deep torture. How does that torture play for you here? Everyone has a little bit of a different reaction to it. This is definitely one you probably didn't catch when you were 12, I'm guessing. And I really like this spectrum that they cover. You have Humperdinck and he is only motivated by rage and jealousy. The albino lies somewhere in between, I think. His interest is piqued, but he also exhibits a fleeting glimpse of shame about that. Rugen, though, he is completely aroused. He has a deep and abiding interest in pain, and there is some kinky psychology in this character and the murder boner that he gets from the machine going to 50. Yeah. Because he's had this flat affect the whole time, and then his eyes sparkle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if the machine wasn't making so much noise, you could literally hear him go, hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned Humperdinck comes in, he throws that machine up to 50. Wesley is dead. Now, the grandson isn't having this. Could you relate to that kid's sense of deep injustice when Buttercup marries Humperdinck and he's told that no one kills Humperdinck in the end? 
I could with 50 exclamation points. This is interesting, actually. This may be where the age difference comes up again, because I couldn't exactly relate the way you're talking about, I think. At that point, I understood that according to literary convention, Humperdinck deserves death because he hired the Sicilian with the intent to murder Buttercup. But as I was much older than that character, I could see how his response was a little indicative of the character's relative naivete and immaturity. Specifically, being a fairly young kid, he cannot yet conceive of a fate worse than death. But then the story itself even undermines death as the ultimate end, because the man in black is dead currently, or at least mostly. Maybe it goes back to that whole sense of danger that I always felt was lurking that comes with this deep and abiding need for wrongs being righted. But I did get over it. Maybe. Now, speaking of fairy tales, how well do you feel that the film walks that fine line of fairy tale and satire, doing basically both at the same time and parroting one? I might quibble with the distinction because I think the second part of what you said there points out, I don't think it walks a fine line. I think it's the simultaneous action, like you were just saying. It parodies the form and is actually of the form. And I think it's veering back and forth over that line all the time or even doing what you were saying there, both things at once, very successfully. The key being the successfully part. Yeah, I think you can really chalk that part up to two things. One, Goldman at the typewriter, and two... I think it works because you can feel that this story in its entirety is made with love. It may edge up to some dark themes, but it never does that cynically. Right. Humperdinck not dying is not pulling the rug from under us or saying, oh, these stupid kids, I'm not going to give them what they want. It's teaching us something deeper. Now, doing a huge right turn from there, I mentioned the broad and the subtle comedy. Now we have a bit more of the broad, but with some mix of the subtle, and that is the trip to Miracle Max and his wife Valerie to try to revive the mostly dead Wesley. Now, whatever you want to say about Billy Crystal now is fine. Here, he's perfect. Well, instead, I'll just say I love Carol Kane so much. <laughs> All right. She's perfect. Actually, That's also no, true. I'm going to say something about Billy Crystal. He is less indispensable to me here. And I think I can plant a seed here for you that might get you to question your position there. A lot of good comics could have done that dialect shtick and been just as funny. So let me make a suggestion. Hear this in your head and then tell me what you think. Okay, I'm ready. Mel Brooks. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Jackie Mason. Actually, I was going to say that he later. He would have been funny, too. Yeah, you hear Mel Brooks doing that, and I think that would have been just as funny, if not funnier, because he's not smarmy underneath. When I look at the two guys, I see Mel Brooks loves to laugh, Billy Crystal loves himself. All right, agree to disagree. Okay. Yeah, maybe we should meet in the middle of Jackie Mason. <laughs> Carol Kane is wonderful, and she has my favorite line ever about wait to go swimming for at least, what, a good hour. Well, the miracle works, but the wedding is still taking place, and that is arguably one of the most famous scenes ever <laughs> in any comedy. Mowage, so. deservedly. Let's just talk about how great Peter Cook is. He totally steals the show, and I love how it's timing, the way it's edited, you have this action, and then there is pause, a hard stop. 
Like if you're playing drums to a song, it is where, bam, on the snare, everything cuts for a literal second, and then you crash forward with Peter Cook. It is a genius bit of editing the timing of a joke. Now, as far as these guys, you were asking me this question earlier, these known quantities, these unknown quantities, do you feel like there's a difference between this, them popping up this way in stunt casting? That's a hard one for me because I didn't know Peter Cook at this point. Wouldn't know him for a long time, actually. You rotter. I was going to say the other one. <laughs> Just look up that bit on YouTube. You'll be laughing for years to come. That bit is Dudley Moore and Peter Cook. Yes. Uh, a different four-letter word that starts with a C. Just go off of that. Anyway, but Billy Crystal I did know. Carol Kane I did know. So it seems like, though, at this point, it was a little less stunt for some of these people because it was still fairly early-ish in their careers. And I guess Billy Crystal is in the family. He was in Spinal Tap. They just weren't saturated in our consciousness, I think. Plus, there's the makeup and the design, which they really committed to. So I feel like just in this instance, we're not meant as an audience to do one of those kind of grunts out loud when we see something come on screen that we know we're being winked at. It doesn't quite feel like that to me. I think you're exactly right. It feels absolutely sincere and like we're almost not supposed to recognize him. I think Rob Reiner actually had to have some significant affinity for or connection to British comedy, either through his work or just as a fan. Because in 1987, Peter Cook does not just show up by accident, though it did help that they were filming in his neck of the woods, I guess. So they're storming the castle, everything's hurtling towards the end, and we have, again, arguably one of the most famous moments in screendom. That's Inigo's and Rugen's battle that you talked about earlier, and that huge speech that he gives, which we can all recite by heart. When I went to see that in 1987, the theater Exploded with cheers. This was such a great communal moment at the movies. One reason that I will always embrace the cinema going experience as opposed to just home viewing. Now when I think about things like this, and I'm not even that much of a Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, but I can't fathom going back now and watching the audience reactions to Avengers Endgame when Chadwick Boseman comes back. You can't tell me you get the same thing watching that at home. And I guarantee if we went to a screening of The Princess Bride at Austin Film Society tomorrow, the audience reaction would still be the same. Totally agree. I have the same reaction every time. It's wonderful. I want to come back to something we were talking about a moment ago for just a second, because now Inigo has reached the end of his quest. He has been avenged. His father has been avenged. Humperdinck not so much because he is left alive. I still think about that, that examination of revenge. One works, one doesn't quite. Giving me that life lesson as we've talked about, that insight into this darker world of fairy tales and also at the same time, real life. I did want to mention something just briefly before we get to the wrap up here in terms of fairy tale lineage and how these things still comment on one another, sometimes decades and decades apart. When Buttercup jumps through the air at the end into Andre the Giant's arms, it immediately makes me think of Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast and the way they are flying away in the finale there. And I think also the fabric choices, that beautiful silver damask, I think it's meant to evoke that. And so we're at the end. 
everyone who wants to be together is together. And the grandson says, come read it again tomorrow. It's a beautiful ending. So at this point, this is a question that we ask ourselves regularly with a film that we know inside and out, even after all this time, because I knew every single line, I knew all the pacing, I knew all the timing. Is there any benefit to watching something like this over and over? You've got a film like Psycho, for example, that we've covered that you feel that you know everything about, but there are still really deep bones to pick over. We find new things. We don't necessarily expect to find something new here. So is this just pointless nostalgia? I feel like I know it that well, too, even though I haven't seen it as many times as you, which may be a little bit more peculiar for me because I don't think of this as one of my all-time favorites, but I do know it like the back of my hand. It's a film that I like, but it's not one that I've sat down and watched over and over or studied like I have some of the others. So I think that's really a testament to how well-written and well-constructed it is that it lodges itself in your memory with only a couple of viewings. It's immediate and highly effective and very memorable. And as far as there being a benefit to revisiting it, did you have a good time? I had a great time, and I think you had a great time too. You were laughing the whole time. Yeah, so mission accomplished. But I should say, I do draw a distinction. Like you said, we have this conversation from time to time. I do take a close look at the things I go back to to see how this piece of art is holding up or is it just nostalgia? Nostalgia so often is just viewing a thing in spite of how poorly it holds up. You're watching it for no other reason than it reminds you of a time when your happiness was looked after and that I don't understand or participate in. That behavior is covered by my green eggs and ham theorem. Have we ever talked about that? No, Professor. Tell me all about it. <laughs> well, Green Eggs and Ham is a great book when you're five. Are you still reading it regularly now? No. Exactly. So when you're 25 or 45, you're allowed to appreciate it for what it was and move on. It's okay to leave things behind and not continually consume material of that level over and over again and live in mental footy pajamas for the rest of your life if the art doesn't hold up. Is The Princess Bride that? I definitely don't think so. You're exactly right. I laughed through the whole thing, and I think it still has something to offer. It's still funny and moving, whether you saw it in 1987 or just for the first time today. And then there may be those people for whom viewing it once is enough. They got everything they needed out of the one viewing, and I can't fault them for that either. I enjoy returning to it every now and then for a good time, and to be reminded of what a good, solid movie it is, it has a great spirit, and that should be rewarded and paid attention to. Well, let's look at the darker side of that, those people who just don't like the movie. Now, you say you haven't encountered this very much. You are online far less than I am. Absolutely. If there could be an exponential nature to that, I would try to pick a number. So, you may not be as familiar with the fact that there is a faction online that reacts very negatively to this movie. Have you run into any of that? I haven't. What form does it take? What are the beefs? The beefs are primarily that it's middle brow, is what I would boil it down to in a single word. And I do understand the backlash to some degree. There are movies that I am supposed to like that either I will never see, like E.T., 
that I don't enjoy at all, like the Goonies, or that I don't enjoy as much as everyone thinks I am supposed to, like Aliens. And everyone has their taste, obviously, but I think it's become a fairly popular position to bash this thing now without actually having gone back to watch it. So is there some element behind it just of snobbishness? That's definitely how it feels in a lot of cases. And since you bring that up, I am glad that Truffaut did not get his hands on this like he might have at one point. But in retrospect, that is strictly just to irk this faction of movie snobs. Now, the flip side of that snobbery is that it is a great generational and family favorite. You can call it middle brow if you want, and that may be the case. It's not aspiring to high art, but I think it actually transcends the limits that that term puts on it. Now, I didn't know when I picked this that I was going to be incredibly prescient with this choice. Some of these crazy synchronicities happen because it's really come back recently. There was just the live reading of it for the Wisconsin Democratic Party. There was the whole movement over the summer of the Home Movie Project, and it was to benefit the World Central Kitchen. Everyone made their own version. They got to be whatever character they wanted to be. And I watched a number of those sections and had a really good time, too. Jack Black absolutely steals the show in those little bits. <laughs> Pretty great. Yeah, it is odd. People may know this or not, but we actually lock in our titles for the coming year in December of the previous year. So December 2019 is when you chose this, and then all of this happens just in time for us to put out this episode. Now, this got a Criterion release, and did that make some people angry as well? I also don't read those kinds of forums. There are always going to be people who are dissatisfied with whatever Criterion puts out. In this case, there were some issues with the packaging, but that's the only quibble I might have with it. But you're never going to appeal to that large of a fan base, even though you're putting out four and five excellent movies or even box sets a month and hit all the things that people want chosen. It's got a lot of nifty special features, by the way. So I definitely wouldn't mind being able to delve into those. Do you have a favorite character in the film? This one is pretty easy. Inigo Montoya, for me, he's the best written. He has the most at stake. He's the only one, notably, that I'm still left to wonder if he lives 15 minutes past when we see them right off into the sunset. Same choice for me. His quest is truly transformative, and he's the biggest underdog. Yeah, he gives me the most work to do and also gives me the most joy at his success. What about, instead of character, a favorite performance? Was it the same? Nope. Andre the Giant, hands down. He was the one, aside from Peter Falk, that I had the most attachment to coming in. And he seems to be having so much fun. And I love the fact that he said he finally felt at home on this set, just accepted as a fellow performer. I enjoy how much that comes through and how often he smiles on screen, even when he's doing something mildly dastardly. So mine ended up being Chris Sarandon as Humperdinck. He's got so many of my favorite gestures here, like picking up the cloth of his doublet when he goes to sit down. <laughs> he's got all these pained expressions when he says ow as she's tying the rope too tightly on him. Maybe I just got seduced by Chris Sarandon all over again. I think it comes back to that Andre the Giant thing I was just saying too, though. You can tell he's having the time of his life. Everyone is. We've mentioned in passing how much everyone loved working on the film and still loves the experience. 
We did end up finding out later that Mandy Patinkin has been from time to time terrible to work with, which was a shock. Even more terrible to tipped employees anywhere he goes in real life. I guess so, yes. I will post what's become an infamous story about him. It's called The Patinkin Incident, in which he auditioned for The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But we'll save that for the post. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful to have the confirmation, hearing them talk about it, that everyone was so good to each other and they had such a wonderful time together. And that whole thing about Mandy Patinkin, even though he may be a jerk in real life, it does not come across that way here at all. Because I think that he is a deeply sensitive person. I think he feels things deeply, and I do believe him. And it's just other situations that maybe didn't work out, or he had a lot of growing to do. I know he has said that. Or maybe just not listen to Internet Scuttlebutt. True. But read this story that I'm going to post, because <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Well, speaking of Mandy Patinkin, before we finish... He said something in an interview that I saw of his that really struck me. This idea of a viewing that hits you differently than when you saw it at 17, for example. For him, he just randomly caught the film on TV when he was in his 50s and sat down to watch it again. And he was really surprised by the line that struck him differently this time as a 50-year-old man than a 30-year-old man. That whole, I've been in the revenge business for so long, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Was there anything that struck you a little bit differently that time has made seem different now? It actually came from the special features this time. That sword fighting practice as a larger metaphor for putting in the work to make everything look easy. It's craftsmanship that makes it so you don't see the seams. And that's a different thing I want to make clear than taking attractive shortcuts or sanding the edges off to make it bland. Being able to see that and finding myself separated from the camp that thinks it's just kind of average and boring. Seeing that in the special features, that made my appreciation for all this so much greater than when I saw this at 17. For me, it was really finally realizing that the kid is the one who was bringing the story to life. Outside of the words, so all of that starting and stopping and commenting and reactions, it makes so much more sense to me, and that was a pretty fun realization that probably everyone else had, but whatever. Thank you for going on this adventure with me. What's your recommendation? My recommendation is Tale of Tales from 2015, and that's directed by Matteo Garone, who also made Gamora, one of the greatest crime films of the 21st century, and it stars Alma Hayek, John C. Riley, Toby Jones, and Vincent Cassell, among many others. Now, a warning. This is at the complete other end of the spectrum of fairy tale. And this is one that embraces that time-honored function of scaring the bejesus out of kids, or in this case adults, to keep them in line. It's a set of stories that are connected by the theme that desire can lead to obsession and it focuses on three rulers in neighboring kingdoms. One is a fornicating libertine, one is captivated by a strange animal, and the third is consumed by her wish for a child. I want to reiterate, this is not one for family movie night, particularly my favorite segment, which you could probably guess from the title. Yes. The Flayed Old Lady. It plays a bit like an anthology picture, and as often happens with those, some sections are better than others, but it's always beautiful to look at, even when the imagery itself is horrifying. 
And when the stories are good, they are very good. There are a couple of moments in this that I will literally never forget. What about you? I, unsurprisingly, am taking us back to family territory. (laughs) I chose Shrek from 2001, loosely based on the 1990 fairy tale picture book of the same name. It was directed by Andrew Adamson and Vicki Jensen. They made their directorial debuts with this film, and it stars Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy, Cameron Diaz, and John Lithgow. The film parodies some other fairy tale adaptations and characters and ideas like Gingerbread Men, The Transformative Beautiful Princess, Puss in Boots, and so much more. Shrek is an ogre who finds his swamp overrun by fairy tale creatures on the run from the evil Lord Farquaad who wants to be king. Shrek makes a deal to preserve his swamp by rescuing Fiona for Farquaad, and there's a talking donkey in on the quest, and there's true love, and learning to love your true nature. I love this book, especially. At the library, we cannot keep it on the shelf still to this day. I love that. That's so cool. I hope that happens for the Princess Bride again. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Tale of Tales and Shrek. And that brings us to the end of episode 140. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Jeff Duncanson, Mike Scharf, Spencer Seams at the We Cut Heads Podcast, and Matteo Boscarol. If you're sharing the show we're talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 